How can you move away from the fear of the Lord? So on Sunday night, we talked about um, judgment and value systems, which is directly opposing to the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Complete contrast, conflicting information to the spirit of the fear of the Lord. But tonight, um, I, I touched on briefly on Sunday afternoon what I'm gonna talk about tonight. And tonight I'm gonna be talking about a couple of different things that, that go hand in hand with the fear of the Lord. And one of them is you know, outpouring. Because we agree that the fear of the Lord precedes revival, right? It doesn't just randomly land on a place. It lands on a remnant or a people or a house that carve it out and create that landing space for the Spirit of God to come. And, but within that, and you know, Todd framed it up beautifully the other day because I knew the Lord was gonna wanted me to speak on persecution. And I was like, well, okay, it's just not really what anybody else is talking about at the moment. But then Todd last week, he said one sentence, he said, conflict within outpouring. And when he said that, I was like, okay, so it's a thing. It's a thing. So, and we are in a season of outpouring. We are. And I wanna say this. I wanna say what a massive privilege it is to be holding a microphone and standing on this stage in this season. It's a massive privilege and I, it's not something I take lightly, but it is something that um, I really, I'm excited to share with you and not just in the context of outpouring, because the Lord's doing that. The Lord's doing that, that's, that's a move of the Holy Ghost. We, he doesn't need help with that. What, the only thing that we are responsible for is the, where the real battlefield is and that is the heart realm, that's the inner world. And so he's been speaking to me about you know, what, what comes in as part of outpouring and revival and not just corporately, but when you have growth and, and breakthrough in your own personal world, it does tend to invoke levels of persecution and conflict. So it's something that can be applied broadly. So that's what I wanna speak about tonight. Okay, so um, I'm not going to be recapping on what I spoke about Sunday night. So for those of you who weren't here on Sunday, it is the, the podcast is up. So if some of this doesn't make sense, please go back and avail yourself to the pod, podcast. That'd be amazing. All right. It's so quiet in here. Oh, all right. <laughs> when, um, when I was unpacking this word, it wasn't just something, it wasn't just like a private conversation between me and the Lord. At the same time, everything happens in clusters. I don't know if you guys you know, um, have noticed that. Things happen in pockets, cycles, in clusters. So while the Lord was unpacking this conversation with me, at the same time, I noticed that most of the sessions that I was doing, even privately through um, my private ministry, conversations pastorally within friends, the conversations always came down to a common theme and that was levels of persecution and levels of conflict. So I started to see how it was going to like, tie in nicely. Now, I really do have to stick to my notes today because last time the pages were everywhere and I just pretended that everything was okay up here. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? <laughs> All right, so, but before I continue, I just wanna make a very clear distinction. Revival isn't battle. Revival is the violent infiltration of heaven on the earth. The real battlefield is the inner world, right? And I'm gonna start the conversation because we're talking about two or three different things tonight. We're talking about judgment, persecution and mercy. The three are totally linked. So I'm gonna break it down into three parts. Um, so let, let, me, let me start with persecution. So when you, when you get saved or when you're new to Christianity, it's almost like you get like this unofficial starter pack. 
you know that there's water baptism, you know that there's speaking in tongues, you know that there's, you know, persecution. Persecution, I've got to stop doing that. I've got to stop talking like my auntie. Persec- I took Maddie to my auntie's house one day. She's a beautiful lady who lives on the York Peninsula and God bless her, she's, so she's real like thick Sicilian accent. So I'm half Sicilian, half Greek. And I took Maddie there one day because we were going on, we were on a drive and, and she's telling Maddie about a house that she's seen for sale and it's got five, five bedrooms, five. <laughs> she's holding up six fingers and I was like, and I, I just walked out, I went to the bathroom and I couldn't stop laughing and Maddie's like, five, five bedrooms. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. Anyway, so that's where, it's a, it's a bad habit I have picked up. Oh, all right. That was not in my notes. Okay, all right, yes. Okay, so part of the Christian starter pack is you've got to fight the good fight of faith. But I don't think people even understand what that means. And when we hear persecution, when, when I was growing up, you know, in the church in the 90s, it, persecution was something that people spoke about, but I always saw it as part of the, you know, the big scale macro narrative persecution. And there is, I touched on that Sunday night, there is. There is a reality where it is, you know, good versus evil, the church versus the world. And I, I made this statement on Sunday, and I'll say it again, but I think the type of persecution that can cause the most damage is that which happens behind the front lines in our, in our camp. The type of persecution that happens within family. Now, not just your biological family, it's whatever you define as family. It's whatever group or host or whatever resource, whatever it is that you define as family. It can be church community, it can be your actual family, it can be your workplace, whatever. So, and that, the reason why, this is um, my personal opinion, the reason why it causes so much damage is because people don't understand what family really is. And so we're disarmed. We start off disarmed. And we tend to have Christianese counsel around that. And really all it's doing is tying our hands and not equipping people the way they need to be equipped. And also, I think that goes hand in hand with people not fully understanding what judgment really is what mercy really is and what persecution really is. Now, I by no means have the full counsel on that. All I have is what He has shared with me, what I've encountered, what I've experienced. And so I, that's, that's all I bring. All I bring is my understanding of these things, it, but it's pretty good. All right. <laughs> all right, so how am I gonna unpack this? Well, I'm gonna be using portions of my own testimony, but mainly I'm going to be using the story of three very interesting people, three people that we all know very well, not personally, but we all know them very well. And it's funny, because Maddie did touch on this on Sunday. She was like, you know, Sarah and Ishmael, and I'm like, ah, she pulled a tot on me. (laughs) So I'm gonna be using the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Now, I know that it's not, it wasn't Sarah, it was Sarai, whatever, it doesn't matter. Tonight it's Sarah, okay? Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. (laughs) The Lord has been speaking to me. Um, I forgot my phone. I don't know how long I'm talking for now. How long has it been roughly? Six minutes, you reckon? (laughs) Let's have a look. Trust me. Every time I've gone through it, I've come back with a different time. Now, I'll just put out a disclaimer now. I may go 10 minutes over, but there's so much I wanna say, so just bear with me. All right. Okay. All righty. 
Uh, where was I? Sarah, that's it, yes. Uh, okay. Now, I have been stuck on this portion of Scripture, now not specifically those three, but around that vicinity, the Old Testament, around that, that early part of the Old Testament for a while now, and it has been life-changing for me. So, and not just applied personally, but also corporately. So I want to use those three because really in, in where I'm going tonight, the theme of judgment, mercy and persecution is demonstrated throughout that account. And I want to remind you that they were a household. They were actually family. Because back then, a bondservant became like almost adopted into the family. So we're talking about someone's household now. We're gonna be dissecting and analysing a household just like we have households, yeah? This is, this is family. All right. So I'm going to give a real quick recap because I'll... I'll, I'll I want to just focus on a very specific part of this conversation. But we know that uh, Sarah was barren and she thought she'd help the Lord by bringing about an heir. And in Genesis, uh, so don't put it up yet. So she's had this conversation with, with Abraham where she's shared her idea of you know, how she's gonna fix the problem and she's gonna give her Egyptian maid to her husband. So can you put up um, Genesis 16, five to six, please? Now, when I started unpacking this uh, around judgment, the Lord showed me that the first time the word judge is ever mentioned in the Bible is in this conversation. So I'll read it out now. Then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Now, a bit of context, Hagar has just conceived. So she's given her maid to her husband to conceive. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, it says that her, um, her mistress was despised in her eyes, meaning contempt, treated with levels of contempt. And then Sarah goes and complains to her husband. May my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. So let's think about that for a second. There's a lot of funk going on here. Now remember, these are people. These are everyday people. We have a situation here where a woman has given her maid to her husband. <laughs> I can see the thing, there's kids here somewhere, so I'm not gonna say anything. All right, all right, okay, anyway. Anyway, you know what? This is a problem when I don't stick to my notes. Stick to the notes. <laughs> so what I'm gonna do is I'm going to repeat, I'm gonna paraphrase this conversation, but really I'm gonna be expanding on the original meanings of the word because we, so much gets lost when we're not looking at the original meanings of the word. So the words that I'm gonna be breaking down is the word wrong when Sarah said, may my wrong. So the word wrong does not mean mistake. It's not like she had a moment where she went, oh, okay, I, I, I see the problem here. I came up with a pretty crappy idea. <laughs> she said, may my wrong be upon you and may the Lord judge. So the word um, wrong and judge, I'm gonna unpack really quickly. And the word please, when he says, see that she's still, you know, your maidservant, do with her as you please. The word wrong means, where is it now? There we go. The word wrong means violence, cruelty and unjust gain. So it doesn't mean my mistake. It means violence and cruelty and unjust gain. 
And so I'm going to now paraphrase. So then Sarah said to Abram, let the violence, cruelty and unjust gain that I have suffered be upon you and let the Lord judge, vindicate, punish and sentence between me and you. To which Abram replies, she's still at your disposal, vindicate yourself. That's what he's saying. Because the word, when he said, do with her as you please, that word please is made up of two Hebrew words. Now, I'm a grozzy speaking Hebrew now, okay? So I'm not gonna speak grozzy, Greek and Aussie, okay? I'm, I'm not gonna speak Hebrew properly, but the word there is, according to my interpretation, the word there is tobey, tobey ayin. The word please, when he said, do with her as you please, is tobey ayin. Tobey means to do or make good and ayin means I, it means fountain, knowledge and regard. So basically do to her whatever you seem right in your own eyes according to your own understanding. Vindicate yourself. Now we all know that she did. We all know that she totally reneged on the statement of may the Lord judge between me and you. That's a religious statement. She had no intention of releasing that pain into the Lord's hands. That was a religious statement. May the Lord judge between me and you. Because as soon as a husband said, Abram in in that moment, totally faithless, according to my opinion. Please no hate messages, thank you. Um, In my opinion, totally abdicated his role. She's, She's still at your disposal. Do with her what you want, vindicate yourself. And she did. So she deals harshly with her. And when she dealt harshly with her, we know that Hagar is sent to flee into the desert. So Sarah persecutes Hagar and it sets her to flight, causes her to flee. Now there is enough in that account for us to unpack for a year, but I'm just gonna stick to my main themes of judgment, persecution and mercy. Sarah wants an outcome so bad that she creates a counterfeit pathway. She wants the outcome so bad. Now the consequences of her decision or her counterfeit pathway go beyond what she anticipated. She wasn't taking into account Hagar's inner world. Hagar was like a piece of meat to her. She didn't take into account, well what happens when she gets pregnant? She's got levels of ego maybe. Is that going to cause her to see me in a different light? That she's got one up on me? She totally did not take into account Hagar's inner world. Then she goes and projects her suffering onto another party, her husband, and she professes to trust the Lord for vindication. Again, religious structure. Abraham abdicates hectically. She vindicates herself and she persecutes Hagar. Now the word persecute, In the original Greek, the word persecute means to uh, pursue, follow after and press toward. But the root word for persecute, so we see the action, we see what the manifestation of persecution is, to pursue, follow after and press toward. But the root word of persecution, which is the motivation, which is the essence and the substance of persecution, means dread, it means timidity and faithlessness. So people who persecute you are motivated by fear and faithlessness. That's why, that that is the breeding ground of a religious spirit. 
they're motivated by fear and because the opposite of, of a religious spirit is faith. So, yeah. So if, you are, if you're coming under persecution, especially from within what you define as family, you need to understand it's actually got nothing to do with your identity and your validity. It's, it speaks more about them. Okay. It's about fear and faithlessness. Just remember that. If you are persecuting someone or something, it's about your fear and faithlessness. Because value, identity, and validity can only be defined by the Lord. And we forget these things, which is why we allow persecution as we perceive it as an attack and it begins to mould us, it begins to, to, to bear its illegitimate load on us. And I talked on Sunday night about reproach. So we take external information and if we don't understand these spiritual concepts, especially if we don't have the fear of the Lord, then another fear is gonna come and begin to mould and redefine us. Now, back in Genesis 16 too, the value system of Sarah's heart is revealed. Have I given you 16 too? Yep. So this reveals her value system. So this is right at the beginning when she's um, sharing her idea with, with her husband. See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. That's nowhere in Scripture. There is no evidence that the Lord shut her womb. I know because I, I went and looked. The only other reference to her barrenness before this was when she's introduced to us, I think in Genesis 11, and it says, Sarah, the wife of Abram, who was barren and she had no children. There was no evidence to support that the Lord had anything to do with it. So we see there where this brain fart of an idea came from, a value system where she beheld prejudice against the Lord. Now this is important because our value systems reveal where we hold prejudice against Him or other people, okay? So her creating her own pathways was justified in her eyes. Her faithlessness was justified by a religious construct that projected her condition on an external factor. So when people are persecuting you, they are revealing their value systems. Um, I'm gonna, okay, this is, I'm, I'm gonna quickly make time for this because I really wanna share it. Another example of this, another famous person that we all know is Saul before he became Paul. Now we all know that he was an extremely violent and, and evil man. There's only one time in the New Testament where the word havoc is, is used and that is to describe him. He was, he, he was, he terrorised the Christians. Um, and when he's on the road to Damascus, he gets blind, we all know the story, he gets blinded by the light and it's Jesus. The, the word is specific that it is Jesus who appeared to him. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you think about it, there are people, the, 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 the blood was still running through the streets of all the innocent men, women and children that he had ripped out of their homes and murdered in, you know, in cold blood in front of everybody. Time and time again, he wreaked havoc, right? Now, of all the things that you think that the Lord would raise, you think it would be the, 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 the manifest issue, the most obvious thing. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He went straight to the motivation of the heart. 
Because had he said, why are you killing innocent people? Saul would have been able to lean back on the law and justify his actions because they're heretics. So the Lord goes straight to the heart motivation. And so Saul had a crazy religious structure. He was doing it all in the name of the Lord. But really, we know that he had fear and he was faithless because the Lord said, you're persecuting me. And we know what the root word of that means. Okay, so it's actually cowardice. So if you're being persecuted by someone, now there is a difference between uh, you know, levels of judgment or you know, fair process and then persecution. So I'm not gonna go into that right now, I'll go into that a bit later. But if you're being persecuted by someone, understand that they are distributing illegitimate weight and responsibility onto you. And you are not obligated to take it. Does that make sense? Okay. So the enemy will use persecution to pull and keep you in a place that keeps you in agreement with identity altering lies. I'll say it again. The enemy uses persecution to pull or keep us in a place of agreement with identity altering lies. Going back to Hagar, going back to the story. The persecution sends Hagar to flight. Now we know that there was levels of contempt. Okay, and it wasn't purely Sarah's perception because it says in the word, and her mistress was despised in her eyes. So the Lord made that very clear, right? So there was levels of, you know, what she did was wrong but she was dealt with harshly. She was persecuted because Sarah had fear in her heart. And we know that because the, Lord, the, the Word tells us that, that she, there was in, deep in her heart, she was afraid. But I'm not gonna go there now. So the persecution sends her into flight. And, and it's obviously an injustice because there was a situation that Hagar had no control over. And she she's, you know, goes into the desert and it says that the angel of the Lord found her by a well. Now, what's interesting there is the word well or fountain is ayin. So and you see the word ayin play throughout Hagar's story. But anyway, um, and then the Lord in that place, so she's upset, she's pregnant, who, you know, who knows what she's feeling. And the Lord says to her, what are you doing here? And she answers him and she says, you know, I've fled from my mistress's face. And then the Lord begins to prophesy over her. And he prophesies over the baby pretty much the exact word that he gave for Isaac. He basically said, I'm going to produce a countless amount of descendants from him. Is That's not what he said to Abraham? So he speaks directly into the identity of the baby and he prophesies. And then he says in Genesis 16, 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, now return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, I mean, I don't even need to go there, but I can just imagine what the reaction would have been or if it was us. I could tell you right now what my reaction would be. But what the Lord revealed here is that the, the Lord was giving Hagar strategy to not vindicate herself. The conversation wasn't over. The matter wasn't closed. He prophesies over the baby, which is the exact opposite of why she fled. She would have been very confused, feeling very illegitimate. The Lord speaks crazy scroll over the baby, then asks her to go back to her mistress. 
That is strategy to allow the Lord to vindicate her. When we do what the Lord tells us to do and not try to create our own pathways for justice to be administrated in our world, it's actually strategy from the Lord that allows Him to do His part, show Himself strong in our part. It's not the end of a matter, it's the end of our false responsibility in the matter. And he actually vindicates her a couple times. I mean, really quickly, when Sarah exiles her into the desert, you know, a few years later, the Lord provides. Now, the, and we know that, you know, he, he opens her eyes to see a well. He opens her a in to see the a in that gave her sustenance. Yep. Now, I said on Sunday that Jehovah Jireh, God provider, is connected to the fear of the Lord. I believe Hagar had, she understood the fear of the Lord. Why else would a woman who was an alien in the house of Abraham go back and fulfill her end of the bargain? Pregnancy is a long time for the, in case people forget that. And it's an uncomfortable process sometimes. And you're doing it under someone who deals harshly with you. She was going back as an inferior party. She, I believe that Hagar had levels of fear of the Lord. She understood the fear of the Lord. She felt seen by him. That's where we get Elroy from. So returning to Sarah when she was pregnant was Hagar submitting to the judgment of the Lord. Now she contributed again to parts of that because of her behaviour towards her mistress, but she still had choice. So she, I believe that she understood the fear of the Lord. So how many of us, I know that I have, how many of us have found ourselves in a Hagar situation? I mean, not a literal Hagar situation. Dear God, I hope not. <laughs> we have ministry forms over that. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> not a literal Hagar situation, but I'm talking about where things happened outside of our control. Things, we found ourselves in a situation where we're bearing the consequences of something that wasn't really our doing. Childhood. That's a childhood situation. So all of us really at different degrees. And how many of us have created and justified our own pathways to justice? Now the thing I wanna mention here is that Hagar had been given to Abram as his wife. The word wife is the exact same word used when we're introduced to Sarah. Been given to him as his wife. Now, people can get all fancy and say, well, technically she wasn't his wife. It was just she was fulfilling the role of wife. I don't care what you call it. The word says it was given as his wife. So she was given as his wife, which means that when Sarah sent them into exile, she totally disinherited what they had rights to. They came under crazy persecution. She totally disinherited them. Now, I have a lot to say about that, but I'm, I'm not gonna go into that. I wanna move on. So now let's quickly move on to mercy. So I've said before that mercy and judgment are crazily linked. Judgment is the outcome of being in our own ways. We can all agree, yeah? Judgment 
is simply the outcome or the result of doing things in your own understanding and leaning on, you know, leaning on your own understanding and being in your own ways, creating your own outcomes. And the Lord's just really kind and He lets you have what you want. He lets you have the fullness of what it is that you're choosing and that includes judgment. But sometimes we're like Sarah and we don't like what our choices have produced. So whether you're like Sarah and you've made some choices and you don't like what they've produced, judgment, or you're like a Hagar where you find yourself in a situation where you don't like what's been produced, the spiritual laws around judgment and mercy do not change. And I, I, want, to, I want to share something around mercy that when, when I was unpacking this, because I knew there was just so much more to what he was showing me. And I, I want to share with you specifically around mercy. So we're going to go straight to the pointy end of the stick. When I was prepping this, the Lord actually interrupted my thoughts. Like there was, I, I was on a roll and he totally interrupted my thoughts and he speaks the scripture to me. He said, justice and judgment are the foundations of my throne. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go, okay, I'll go straight there. So if you could put up Psalm 89, 14. So I'm, I'm just unpacking, you know, I was in the middle of prepping this part when I'm talking about how justice is linked, sorry, how judgment is linked to mercy and then the Lord just bang, brings this to me. Now, in, this, is, this is the NK um, New King James Version, but in the original text, in the original Hebrew, it, the words are, Justice and judgment are the habitation of your throne or the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. See, they're linked. Mercy and judgment, okay? Then he prompted me to look deeper into mercy. Now, the word mercy is said, something like that, said, and it means kindness, godly, good deed, pity or favour. And the root word of mercy or the root word of said is corsad. And corsad means to bow the neck in courtesy to an equal. It's very interesting. As soon as I got that, I was like, wait, 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 wait. So mercy doesn't mean being nice to someone, being merciful overlooking something from a, from a posture of superiority where you look and you go, that's okay, I'll be merciful to you. The root word of mercy actually means to bow the neck in courtesy to an equal. And as I'm still like, I'm, 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 I'm mid-typing this down, he speaks again and he interrupts my thoughts and he says, with the merciful, I show myself merciful. So I go straight to ground zero, Psalm 18.25. With a merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless, now in the original text, it's upright, so I'm gonna read it that way. So with a merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless or upright man, you will show yourself blameless or upright. So now, let me unpack that for you really quickly. The word upright there is tormeme. So with the Tormim man, Tormim means entire, it means integrous, it means truth, it means undefiled and without blemish. So with the integrous, truthful, undefiled, blem um, without blemish man. So with the Tormim man, ma'am, ma'am, with, <laughs> with the Tormim 
man, you will show yourself torment. So the root word, so, so no, not root word, there's two separate words. So upright and upright, blameless and blameless is tormim and tormem, two different words, right? And tormem means to complete, come to an end, make an end, perfect, consume, accomplish, cease, be all gone, whole. Now, I'm gonna do my whole paraphrasing again. But before I do, where it says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful, that's not the same word. That is kesed korsed. With the kesed, with the kind, godly, you know, whatever, you will show yourself korsed. So now I'm gonna paraphrase it. With those that show, it's my impassioned translation. <laughs> with those that show kindness and walk in a godly manner, you will be kind and bow your neck as though to an equal. Talking about the Lord there. I'll read that again. With those that show kindness and walk in a godly manner, you will be kind and bow your neck as though to an equal. And to those who remain integrous and undefiled, you will perfect and manifest yourself in a way that causes matters to come to an end, be consumed and done away with, bringing all things to wholeness and completion. That's what that verse means. That's how judgment and mercy are linked. Now, I'm gonna bring in another scripture here. I'm gonna tie this all up in a second. Can you put up Romans 12, 19? Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, or wrath, I say wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is that when we relinquish all control to the Lord, not through disassociation, and the instruction there is, give place to, to your anger, give place to your hurt. Process it healthily. Don't take it upon yourself to then justify your ways and vindicate yourself. Acknowledge it and process it. Give place to it. But vengeance will be mine. Vindication will be mine. What that does, when we take that scripture literally, for the way that it was intended to be taken, when we do that, which again is through the fear of the Lord, because the only way to relinquish control is to understand who He is and His role, right? When we do that, it actually activates a function of heaven. It actually makes a demand on heaven to manifest in your favour. You know, just like with kids, for those of you who've got kids, you've probably had the same experience. You know, I've got three beautiful kids, but there are seasons and cycles and times where they just fight like cat and dog. And they'll come and, you know, Talia did this, Israel did that, Santina did this. And then right as they're just telling me, the other one, the one in question will come running out. Yeah, but then she did that to me. And Nick and I have, oh, I can't tell you how many times we've sat them down and said, if you would like me to punish, if you would like me to sentence and vindicate, you need to not do anything back. You need to, as soon as the injustice is served, you need to come to me and give me an opportunity to rule in your favour. Stop muddying the waters. Stop perverting the course of justice. 
I can't tell you how many times I've had to say that to my kids. That's what, that's what he's saying here in Romans 12, 19. Stop perverting the course of justice. All right. Now let's look at the other side of the coin. I'm doing really good for time, okay. Let's look at the other side of the coin. What about, you know, because we, we, by now I'm sure we all agree that judgment and mercy are linked. But what about when the judgment isn't in our favour? Is it still merciful on the Lord's part? Yes. Yes. Because we know that judgment is a result of being in our own ways, leaning on our own understanding and vindicating ourselves. He's simply allowing us to have what we want. Because when we try to ascend and occupy a space that we're not created for, like Eve, or when we take matters into our own hands and vindicate ourselves, like Sarah. So when we ascend and try to occupy a space, create our own plumb line of truth, like Eve, or where we take matters into our own hands and create our own pathways of justice, like Sarah, we're choosing to raise that part above the spiritual order. Okay, we, 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 there's, no, there's no place for us there. That's why it never works. And God allows the fruit. He bows his neck as though to an equal. This is what you wanted. Now you deal with it. You suffer the consequences. It would, if, the, if God withheld judgment from us, this is an interesting thought. If God withheld judgment from us, it would actually be condescending on his part to us because we've chosen something. He would be impeding on our free will. Think about that. If He withheld consequences from us, it would be condescension on His part. I'm sure I'm not the only one where sometimes we find ourselves in a situation and we end up blaming God. But you said, you told me to do this and I touched on value systems and obedience on Sunday night. You know, which is why I did that, to, to, so I wouldn't have to go into it now. But we can create hectic blind spots. We blame the Lord for the outcome of our own choices, but when you get down to the, to, to the core of it, we've really produced each step of the way. The Lord, it would make Him disingenuous if He withheld consequences and judgment from us. Now, I'm really quickly going to go back to when I, because before I talked about mercy, I talked about that Hagar and Ishmael were disinherited. Abraham was a rich man. He had a lot of resource. When Sarah, so she, she got her heir, she, she, she had Isaac. Years later, Isaac wasn't a boy I'd say he was about pre-teen or maybe early teens when she says to Abraham, send them into exile, get rid of them. She says, I will not share the inheritance, my son's inheritance, especially Isaac. She's talking about more than one person. I will not share it. Send the bond servant and her son into the desert. So, but wait a minute, she had rights. She was, she was given to him as his wife. Here's your blood. And we know that Abraham was troubled over it. And then the Lord says, just do it. 
Just do it. Did you know that the Quran teaches that God sent them into exile? That it was God's idea? Hmm. So anyway, so Abraham takes them to where, you know, he sends them off. He's a rich man. He gives them one bladder of water. He gives them, the, actually the word says, he gives them enough water for just one day. You got two people on the edge of a desert and he gives them only enough water for one day. What was Sarah hoping? That they would perish? So the bitter root had gone beyond he won't share the inheritance. I don't even care if they die on the way. Totally disinherited them. He could have given them a camel carrying weeks of water. But no, they were on foot with water for just one day. Now the irony in this is that Sarah and Abraham's direct descendant being Jacob was saved from famine because they were embraced by Pharaoh into Egypt, which is Hagar's homeland. Jacob could have perished, the whole household of Jacob, but the Lord preserves Sarah's bloodline through the kindness of Egypt. Now, I'm not, I don't really want, I'm just, I'm, okay. Strike from the record that this is not part of my preach, I'm just sharing a, a, an interesting thought with you. He showed me cycles. So he saved Sarah's bloodline through the mercy of Joseph's journey, Joseph coming into fullness of scroll into Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't withhold anything. Pharaoh gives him choice piece of land in Goshen. It was like a paradise. He actually gave them jobs as part of his household. He said he used, he empowered their expertise. He got them to, to steward all the cattle of Egypt. But then the cycles, and I believe iniquity, that when that Pharaoh dies and Joseph is forgotten, it says that the Egyptians then disinherited Sarah's bloodline. They were disinherited, they became slaves. Interesting. She disinherited Hagar, turned her back into a... a don't worry about the fact that she's, she, she's half of her blood and half of your blood is in the boy. It doesn't matter that I gave her to you as your wife. Now she's just a bondservant. I'm, I'm justifying the action because she's just a slave. She dehumanised her to a slave. And that's exactly what happened to Sarah's direct descendants in Egypt. The Egyptians completely disinherited them and turned them into slaves. And then we know that they were then exiled into the desert as well, but they, had, they got the gold. Anyway, that's what happens when you're God's people. You get the gold. And then, just, this is just off the side, okay? This one's for free. Then Sarah's bloodline continues to be saved by Egypt when Jesus and his family have to flee Herod and is raised in Egypt. So anyway, I believe that's part of the Lord's mercy on Hagar. He used the lesser party, the underdog, to demonstrate his, his ways, his laws, his value system. Judgment and mercy is the value system of the Lord. All right. Now, starting to land the plane. The fear of the Lord, and I mentioned this on Sunday night, the fear of the Lord is so much more than just reverence and awe. I introduced um, a thought where I said, I see it as a paradigm shift in that the fear of the Lord is not something that we do for God. You don't tick a box when you get the fear of the Lord. 
I'm a better Christian because I have the spirit of the fear of the Lord. One down, six to go. Doesn't work like that. It's not something we do for God. The fear of the Lord is what allows God to manifest in our favour on our behalf. It allows Him to serve us in the fullness of our inheritance in Him. That's what the fear of the Lord does. It is a, it's a catalyst, it's the proceedings, it's the fullness and gateway to our inheritance in Him. The Israelites continually disinherited themselves in the book of Judges because they, tobey ayind, they did what was right in their own eyes. How many times does that come up in the book of Judges? They did what was right in their own eyes, continually disinherited themselves. The fear of the Lord is what's gonna sustain us when the pressure comes, when the persecution comes. Because what it does, when, when, when you don't have fear of the Lord, this is what happens. When you don't have fear of the Lord, you get set to flight. You flee under any pressure or persecution. And you allow somebody else to define you, to define your identity. So when you don't have the fear of the Lord, you allow others to disinherit you and you also can disinherit yourself. Because if you're not fearing the Lord, you're fearing something else. Okay. And it's what's gonna cause us to not be moved. So, another thing interesting about Hagar, when she fled from her mistress, when she was dealt with harshly, she was halfway back to Egypt. So when we don't have fear of the Lord and we're persecuted in some way, we go back to old pathways, we go back to what's familiar. We go back to the old man, not your old man, the old man. <laughs> but she chose the better part. She chose to heed the Word of the Lord. She chose to be upright, but to the upright man, you will show yourself upright. So she chose to give the Lord an opportunity. So she came into agreement with the judgment even though it didn't look like it was much in her favour, right? She came into agreement with the judgment of the Lord, which gave him an opportunity to perfect, accomplish, complete and make whole his promises to her. Which we saw in Psalm 18.25. She chose to be merciful. She chose to take the higher road. So the Lord was then able to bow his head as though to an equal. Okay, I'm going to I'll share with you guys. So this is how I'm landing. I'm gonna um, share with you guys an encounter that I had with the Lord this morning. All right. I was spending time with him. I, I really, you know, how many people here have prepped a preach? So it's not always easy, is it? Like it's a lot of work <laughs> to a degree. Not like, you know, I'm not saying getting the revelation is hard, but then you've got to put it all together so it makes sense because not everyone lives in your head, right? <laughs> but I, I, I was so, I so wanted to, um, not just just run with it simply because I had the substance of something. I, I, I brought it before him again. 
And I said, are you sure you want me to talk about this? Because I've got a few hours. If I need to make some changes, I can do that now. Now would be a really good time to tell me. <laughs> and he just, he just encountered me in a way that I'm gonna share. Um, he said to me, he said, ask me, what is the substance of mercy? Do we have pads that I probably asked about two hours ago? Thank you. Thank you. Because, you know, words create worlds. And when I share an encounter with you, I'm not recalling a memory. I'm actually, I'm bringing a dimension into the room. If you have an ear to hear and a heart to understand, you can actually partake of the encounter. So please, if you, you can have your eyes closed, I don't care, you can do whatever you want. I'm gonna share the encounter with you because I really want you to catch a substance. He said to me, ask me what the substance of mercy is. So I asked him and he said, not for personal profit or gain. The substance of mercy is not for personal profit or gain. And then he said to me, ask me, what is the cost of showing and, or giving kindness? Because an expression of mercy, the meaning of mercy is kindness. What is the cost of showing or giving kindness? And he said, the cost is to have no fear. To truly show kindness, you can't trade in fear. You can't have any constructs before Him. You cannot have ego because it's not for profit or gain. You can't have anything to protect or defend. Kindness is given without prejudice. And then He said to me, ask me, what is the cost of receiving kindness? He said, no fear, no constructs before me, no ego, nothing to protect. And it is received without prejudice. Kindness cannot be traded on or with. It's a high trading floor. It's a heavenly trading floor. And as I'm having this encounter with him, he reminds me of something that happened to me when I was about 22. And it was like I relived, well, didn't quite relive it, thank God, but it was like I had just, it was like I was back in that room. When I was 22, there was a situation that happened, it was in the evening, there was a situation that happened in the home that was highly stressful for me. I was caught in the middle of a very precarious, hostile situation. And I went into my bedroom and I sat on my bed. I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. I was raised and I was born and raised in a Pentecostal Christian home, but I didn't have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. I just knew what to, the right things to say and do. And that was about it. And I was taught that God sees everything. So that was about as deep as my Christianity went. And I sat on my bed and so great was the weight of this Situation that I found myself sandwiched in. It was unfair. It was like Hagar, where I was caught in the middle of, a, of, of something I should never have been brought into the middle of. 
And I sat on my bed and I cried and I cried because the weight of it was crushing me. I was taking illegitimate and false responsibility, but I didn't know any better. And I was, I, I was so broken. It was about 10 o'clock at night, the lights were on. I sat on my bed and I, I projected on the Lord. And I just said, where are you? Where are you when it really matters? If you care and if you're real, why wouldn't you be here right now? Because so great was the injustice. I knew He could see the injustice. I was like, where are you? I said, I am not going to sleep until you come. And to prove it, I'm not even gonna turn the light off. The light's gonna stay on because you're gonna come. I waited and I waited and I waited. Midnight came and I started again. The realisation that He wasn't gonna come and I broke down again and I was angrier. And I said, this was around about the time that Jesse Duplantis's um, testimony came out. Do you remember Jesse Duplantis was, well, actually probably wasn't the time then, I probably heard about it then, where, you know, God came and visited him. So in my anger and my pain and my frustration, I projected that on him and I said, or do you only care about the big dogs? Do you only care about the Derek Princes and the Kenneth Copelands and the Jimmy Swaggers and the Jesse Duplantises? Where are you? Do you not care about the plebs? Do you not care about us small folk? I'm not going to sleep until you come. So I sat up, my arms crossed up against the wall. And then I woke up at about three in the morning. And when I realised I had fallen asleep, the defeat that came on me, I was so angry. I was so angry. I was so broken. I was like, don't you care? We're told to love you, but you don't give up. Beep, 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 beep. You come right now. I want you now. It made sense, right? Because technically, he shouldn't just care about the Kenneth Copelands and the Jimmy Swaggets. Technically, he's supposed to care about me. So I had rights, you see. You come right now. You say you're not a liar. So I choose to believe you. So where are you? But I was just hurting so bad. I fell asleep again. Didn't know I fell asleep. You don't know when you fall asleep. You know when you wake up and time has passed. So I wake up at about 6am and it was daybreak and I could hear my dad, my real dad, um, as in, Oh, in the natural. I could hear my dad getting ready in the bathroom and the wave of disappointment and hopelessness that came over me because now I'm in a place where I've got to continue my life choosing is God real or not? Not because I believe He's not real, but now, now there's a matter of pride. He's won. He didn't come. And I was still, because you know, I'm, tenacious. Still, I was sore from waking up against the wall like this. I lay down, broken, crying again. And I said, I'm not going to go to work until you come. I will not go to work. And I was cold. So I pulled the blanket, the quilt up like this. And I was laying there. My eyes were swollen from crying all night. And as I'm laying there, out of nowhere, I hear this. Now, it's not a sound that you hear. 
it's something that is, there, there, is no, there, there is no beginning or end. The sound comes from within and without. And I was laying there and I was like, and it got louder. It was so loud and it came with a pressure that, that I, my framework didn't make sense anymore. I couldn't tell where my skin began, where my bones were. I couldn't, I, I, I had no physical construct. And I knew that He wasn't fully there yet. I knew that He was coming. And I began to crack myself. I was laying there. Like, and, and so that the, when you hear a sound, you have levels of control because it's coming, it's external and it's coming toward you. Subconsciously, you have levels of control. But if the sound is coming from within and without, you have no control. You realise that your construct means nothing. So it was getting louder and louder and louder and louder. Like that. And the pressure was so great that I felt like my body was going to explode any second. And I knew that it was right there, but I was laying down like this and I had the quilt like this. And I remembered Jesse Duplantis. Do you guys, who's heard the testimony? When I heard his testimony, where he was too scared to turn around and look at the Lord, I thought, what an idiot. He had the Lord there, you didn't even turn around. I understood in that moment. I laid there, the pressure was so great. And this, this, this violent noise that like, it's just, there's no escape, no level of control. And, and my body felt like it was just gonna, like it, there was, it wasn't even pressure like this. If, if I put pressure on your body like this, it's, you can pinpoint the source. It was coming from everywhere, inside and out. And I just remember when he got to as far as he got, I knew he was right there. All, I couldn't speak, I couldn't move my jaw. I, I had no control. All I could do was think. And all I said was this in my mind. I said, please don't speak. Because I knew that had he gone, I would have gone. I actually feared for my life in that moment, but not fear as in danger, threat, as in, oh my goodness, I am, I'm, I'm a speck of dust that compared to you, my construct compared to you, if you speak right now, you're gonna, you're gonna send me into oblivion. And then the most bizarre thing happened. I was sucked out of my body and He did send me into oblivion. I was flying through outer space. Now you guys can, you, you can do with this information whatever you want, I don't care. This is actually what happened to me. You know, Paul said, whether in the body, out the body. Oh no, I know, I was out the body. Like I was, I, was in, I, was in a, I was in outer space. I wasn't in a dimension, I was in outer space. I was flying through outer space so fast. I was in a, a tunnel that looked like it was made of big blue bubbles. And the bubbles were transparent. They were like big blue lights. And I could see, like, you know, if I had this bubble here, I'd still be able to see the door behind it. And the, and the tunnel was just like, like this. And it was just like, you know, like, like that. And I was in this position. And I was flying so fast that my head was being pushed into my body. My skin was being dragged down like this. And it was really cold. It's really cold up there. I was, and I, I was just flying through outer space through this thing. Now I didn't, I'm, I'm not a science, I'm not good with science. I didn't pass science in high school. 
So I certainly wasn't paying attention to anything in physics. But I knew in that moment when you're in, it's amazing how quickly you can process information when you're in it. When I was in that, I knew that if I just moved my head a tiny bit with the speed that I was going, I was going to shoot out of that tunnel so quickly. And this is exactly what went through my head. You know, people think when you have an encounter with the Lord, you're like this, all of a sudden you're a saint and it's like music and ah. No, you think everything. You're still a soul. You're still a soul and you still think. I remember thinking, if I move my head, just a, if I just, just a tiny bit, NASA's going to find me like this in outer space. I thought that. I'm trying to work out what the heck is happening to me. I'm trying to stay alive. I'm like, I'm in outer space and there's no astronauts with the tubes. I'm like, what am I doing out here? And then I'm heading towards this light and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's, an, there's a destination. Like it's, this is gonna end in a minute. And I hit this light and all of a sudden I'm back. You know, I walk into a room and I see a two-year-old girl and she's watching Looney Tunes cartoons. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. And I'm look, so I'm in it, now I'm in a different dimension. And I'm, and I'm looking at, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of freaking out. I'm like, this, you're me and you're right here. And then in this encounter, my natural dad walks in, picks up the toddler, looks at me and says, we're going to the garage. Do you wanna come? Do you wanna come? I'm like, oh my gosh, you can see me. Do you know who I am? Because you're holding me. Are you not freaked out? <laughs> you can see me. I didn't know you could see me. And he said, come on, Christina, we're going to the garage. Do you wanna come? And I was like, I've, I've got to go to work. I worked for a really bad boss. I still have dreams about this workplace. Anyway, and I was like, oh, but I've got to go to work. And bang, I was in my body. I jumped out of bed and I ran into the bathroom to tell my dad. And the first thing my dad said to me, he goes, when you were little and you were super stressed. When you were little, when you were super stressed, you would have night terrors. And the only way to calm you down was I would take you in the middle of the night and we'd go to the garage and I'd point over the fence. And the only way to shut you up was to say, where's the doggy? Where's the dogs? Where are the dogs? And I would stop crying and I'd be like, Then I realised that the Lord was saying to me, just calm your farm. I'm always there. It manifested through your natural father when you were little, but I'm always there. And I believe that day when I was, He said to me, He reminded me of the encounter. And He said to me, He said, I, it's my kindness that I keep the veils that you don't see that in me. I got baptised in the fear of the Lord that day. Not because I was terrified or for my life, but I saw what real strength looks like. I saw the substance of Him that day. And I'm gonna read it to you exactly as He gave it to me because I'm gonna stuff it up if I don't. He said He wasn't trying to intimidate me. 
He was allowing me to see who He really is. He removed all of the veils on that day that veils that allow us to build in our own ways. We've become so familiar with a God we do not know. Todd says that all the time and it's so true. Veils so that we can commune and have intimacy with Him, that if He removed them, we wouldn't be able to do anything in our own ways. My construct meant nothing in that moment. I understood my place in that moment. He removed all of the veils that allow us to build gross prejudice against Him. In that moment, I had zero prejudice. It was very clear. It was very clear His sovereignty and His goodness, His holiness up against my constructs. It was like He was being super meek and derobing Himself and saying, this is who I am. It was like He derobed and to reveal Himself to me. Just like when Aslan in Narnia allowed himself to be bullied and taunted by such an inferior party. I saw his vulnerability and kindness in that moment. Something that you can only truly understand in the fear of the Lord. And when he reminded me of that encounter, it was like I felt him say to me, tell them who I really am. Fear of the Lord requires us to surrender all rights and prejudices we have toward Him. If you have prejudice toward God, you don't know Him. So what I wanna do, if that speaks to you, I believe that there is an invitation tonight, an invitation, and this is all I really care about. I just wanna facilitate the invitation of laying down any prejudice we have toward Him. you're in agreement with that, please take your communion as I just start speaking some things over us. And if you need help understanding what that means to have prejudice, apart from everything I've already said, think about it like this. If you can identify where you're like an Eve, where you try to ascend and create your own truth, or where you feel like a Sarah, where you've tried to create your own pathways, or where you've been like a Hagar and you found yourself in a very unfortunate circumstance and you still cannot get past the level of betrayal and injustice that it has produced or whether you feel like a Saul, that you know that you are motivated by fear and dread and you have areas of faithlessness. Or where you may feel like a David, where you may have engaged in things where you feel like, well, where do I even begin? I want us now to allow the Holy Spirit to bring those things to light, to bring those things to the forefront of our mind. 
And the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invite you to see the truth. And the truth is a man, truth is not a thought. Truth is a man and His Name is Jesus Christ. And it says in the Word that He has never left you nor forsaken you. It says in the Word that He is near to the brokenhearted. And that whatever situation that you are bringing to the forefront of your mind, I want you to give yourself permission to see that He is right there. And He was there all along. All along. Truth is a man. And I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to show you the prejudice that you have built up in your heart against Him or even others. And make the choice now to lay that down at His feet and allow justice to be administrated His way before you take your communion because that's what the Word says in Mark eleven twenty five. Anything that you have against anyone, even Him, needs to be laid down. Holy Spirit, thank You. We thank You that You are a genius and that You have woven like a tapestry through this entire season, including the outpouring, that You have revealed who You are. You have chosen to meet us where we're at. We honour You, Holy Spirit. We honour You. We thank You for the gift that is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. We thank You that You created every possible solution for complete and perfect intimacy and oneness in You. That You took the weight and the responsibility to make that happen. And all You require is for us to be willing to lay down all levels of prejudice and construct before You. That judgment and mercy are the foundation of Your throne. And we thank You that the fear of the Lord helps us understand both judgment and mercy that we will not be set to flight, that we will not be tempted to run back to old pathways and the old man. We thank You that You are good and everything, every single thing You do is good, that You are the Father of lights. We thank You for taking the weight and the responsibility for bringing us into completion and wholeness if we choose to walk in an upright manner before You regarding all things. Take your communion whenever you're ready.
I dare you to look beyond the veil. I dare you to posture yourself in a way that you give Him permission to reveal Himself to you that way. He is loving kindness. We're gonna leave the pads on for those of you that are still in an encounter, but I'll close the meeting there. You're free to go. Just ask that you respect the neighbours and not be loud. And just a reminder that we're um, tab- Tabernacles open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Oh, and yes, oh my goodness, I forgot. Thank you. So on Sunday, the Crawford Marshes will be back. Praise the Lord. <laughs> They've come straight out of the Hebrides. So we're obviously, you know, we're going to get some real gold nuggets there. So they'll be with us on Sunday. We're very excited about that. Sorry, I was meant to announce that before. Um, so yeah, so we'll see you guys on Sunday. But please, you know, we're going to leave it um, open. We're going to leave the pads on. If you're in encounter, just, you know, finish your business with the Holy Spirit. Eh? All right, guys, thank you so much.